Syrian dictator Bashar Assad uses chemical weapons again. London talks about banning knives. Yes, really. And The Atlantic bans conservatives. I'm Ben Shapiro, and this is The Ben Shapiro Show. So welcome back. Here we are in our beautiful studios once again. And I could not be more pleased to be home, except for how I wish I were on vacation still. But since I am not, we will have to do a show. So I have a lot to talk about today. Obviously, the possibility of war in the Middle East is heating up in pretty dramatic fashion after Bashar Assad used chemical weapons on his own citizens. But first, I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at Birch Gold. So the stock market has been up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. I mean, it's been extraordinarily volatile over the past several weeks. This is one of the reasons why it makes sense to have some of your money in precious metals. I'm not saying take all your money out of the stock market and put it in precious metals. I don't. I have a lot of my money in the stock market, but I do have a certain percentage of my earnings in precious metals. And the reason for that is because I don't want the government manipulating the currency and I want to hedge against that. And also the stock market is quite volatile right now. And that means that if you want to hedge against the problems of volatility, gold is not a bad way to do that. Well, with all of that uncertainty, that means that you should trust my friends over at Birch Gold Group if you do decide to invest in precious metals. They have a long-standing track record of continued success with thousands of satisfied clients, counts, countless five-star reviews, and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. Contact Birch Gold Group right now and request a free information kit on physical precious metals. This comprehensive 16-page kit shows how gold and silver can protect your savings and how you can, if you seek to do so, legally move your IRA or 401k out of stocks and bonds and into a precious metals IRA. To get that no-cost, no-obligation kit, go to www.birchgold.com slash Ben. That's birchgold.com slash Ben. They're good people. They're trustworthy people. Ask all of your questions. Make sure that you have all your answers. And then talk to my friends over at Birch Gold. That's birchgold.com slash Ben. Get that free information kit. And that also lets them know that we sent you. Okay, so obviously the big news over the weekend and the big news today is the situation in Syria. So over the last few days, the dictator of Syria used chemical weapons against his own citizens once again, and the footage broke on TV. Now, as you recall, the last time there was a public use of chemical weapons and the news broke on TV, President Trump lobbed a couple of missiles into Syria. Is something like 50 missiles were, were lobbed into Syria, and, uh, and a particular airbase was hit. Well, it's unclear what exactly the United States is going to do as of yet, but already action has been taken. It's been taken by Israel. So Israel went in and, and knocked out a, a Syrian airbase and took down some of their Syrian air defenses. Uh, and I'll give you all that information in just a second. For those who don't know what Syrian chemical weapons attacks look like, they are just horrendous and horrific. The footage uh, looked something like this. So you can see these children are you know, being treated. They're being washed off with water because they've all been doused with chemical weapons. Uh, a, a, lot of these, a lot of these folks... Uh, are, have died of suffocation. Something like 100 people died of suffocation. Uh, and uh, the, I mean, these are children. These are small children. So obviously when you see images like this, it's absolutely horrific. Israel lashed out yesterday. So here's the story from the Associated Press. Russia and the Syrian military have blamed Israel for a pre-dawn missile attack Monday on a Syrian airbase that reportedly killed 14 people, including three Iranians, while international condemnation grew over a suspected poison gas attack over the weekend that was said to be carried out by the Syrian government. Opposition activists said 40 people died in the chemical attack, blaming President Bashar Assad's forces. The U.N. Security Council planned to hold an emergency meeting Monday to discuss the chemical attack. Well, whoop-dee-doo with the U.N. Security Council. Russia sits on the U.N. Security Council. Russia is the great sponsor state of the Syrian regime. So nothing is going to happen in the U.N. Security Council. We should pull all of our money from that awful institution. If you want to know how terrible the U.N. is, understand that Syria is about to sit on the Committee for the Regulation of Chemical and Biological Weapons. No, that is not a joke. That is a real, actual thing. 
So before you start thinking that the UN is going to step in and solve anything at all, recognize that the UN is a gigantic joke. And that is why it's up to sovereign states to do something about these sort of atrocities. The timing of the strike on the airbase in the central Homs province hours after President Trump said there would be a big price to pay for the chemical weapons attack raised questions about whether Israel was acting alone or as a proxy for the United States. Israel typically does not comment on its airstrikes in Syria. It was the second such attack this year on the airbase. The airbase is known as T-4, and it's where Iranian fighters are believed to be stationed. According to Russia's defense ministry, two Israeli aircraft targeted the T-4 airbase, firing eight missiles. It said Syria shot down five of them. The other three landed in the western part of the base. Syrian state TV quoted an unnamed military official saying that Israeli F-15 warplanes fired several missiles at T4, and it gave no further details. And of course, Israel's foreign ministry said nothing. Since 2012, Israel has struck inside Syria more than 100 times, mostly targeting suspected weapons convoys destined for the Lebanese militant group Hezbollah, which has been fighting along Syrian governmental forces. So this looks like this could be the prelude to larger action. John McCain, one of the people, Senator McCain, has been pushing for larger action in Syria for a long time. He's wanted to topple the Syrian regime for years and years, and he suggested that we arm Syrian rebels. One of the problems with that at the time is it wasn't clear who the Syrian rebels actually were. Were they all kind, gentle, nice people, or were some of them associated with terrorist groups the way that some of the people we armed in Libya were? That was unclear at the time. It led to a lot of Republican pushback. Here's what Senator McCain had to say. He said, President Trump last week signaled to the world that the United States would prematurely withdraw from Syria. We didn't have a chance to talk about this last week, but Trump did say he wanted to withdraw from Syria. And immediately, within days, Bashar Assad was using chemical weapons on his own citizens. That's why President Trump's rhetoric actually matters, and to pretend otherwise is foolish. McCain continues, Bashar Assad and his Russian and Iranian backers have heard him, and emboldened by American inaction, Assad has reportedly launched another chemical attack against innocent men, women, and children, this time in Duma. Initial accounts show dozens of innocent civilians, including children, have been targeted by this vicious bombardment designed to burn and choke the human body and leave victims writhing in unspeakable pain. Crimes against humanity have become Assad's trademarks in his relentless campaign against the people of Syria that has killed more than half a million people and forced 11 million people from their homes, according to John McCain. President Trump was quick to call out Assad today, along with the Russian and Iranian governments on Twitter. The question now is whether he will do anything about it. The president responded decisively when Assad used chemical weapons last year. He should do so again and demonstrate that Assad will pay a price for his war crimes. To be sure, President Trump inherited bad options after years of inactions by his predecessor in Syria. History will render a bitter judgment on America for that failure, but no one should believe that we are out of options. We can and should change course, starting with a comprehensive strategy that lays out clear objectives for our mission there. Well, that is the big question, is what are the objectives going to be for the mission there? Because foreign policy isolationists, people like Ann Coulter or Rand Paul, they would say we have no interest in Syria whatsoever. So terrible things are happening there, awful humanitarian crisis, but humanitarian crises are happening all over the world. It is not the job of the United States to stop every humanitarian crisis. It all depends on the sort of blood and treasure America will have to expend in order to stop those humanitarian crises. Well, that's obviously true. We have to calculate each individual situation on its own. But the situation on Syria has fundamentally changed in the several years since President Obama allowed Bashar Assad to get away with his chemical weapons attack. Here's what President Trump tweeted after all of the after the chemical weapons attack. He tweeted, quote, Many dead, including women and children, in mindless chemical attack in Syria. Area of atrocity is in lockdown and encircled by Syrian army, making it completely inaccessible to outside world. President Putin, Russia, and Iran are responsible for backing animal Assad. So he's now gotten a nickname for Assad, which is entirely appropriate in this case. Big price, and continued, big price to pay. Open area immediately for medical help and verification. Another humanitarian disaster for no reason whatsoever. Sick. Okay, all of that is true. The question becomes, okay, what is going to happen next? Well, Trump's national security advisor, well, his security advisor, rather, Tom Bossert, 
Uh, he was on national TV on Sunday, and he said, listen, all the options are on the table here. This is one of those issues on which every nation, all peoples have all agreed and have agreed since World War II is an unacceptable practice. So, so looking is it at, possible they, there will be another missile attack? Yeah, I wouldn't take anything off the table. These are horrible photos. We're looking into the attack at this point. The State Department put out a, a statement last night, and uh, the president's senior national security cabinet have been talking with him and with each other all throughout the evening and, and this morning, and, and myself included. So one of the things that's amazing about all of this is that people on the left are already critical of Trump. Trump inherited an awful situation here. Tommy Veter who is just a dolt. He used to drive a van for Obama and then suddenly ended up as a national security counselor for President Obama after driving a van. And now I guess that he is, uh, and now I guess that he is doing Pod Save America type stuff. Well, he tweeted out that President Trump inherited a bad situation. Well, Tommy, who did he inherit that from? Weren't you there? I mean, all of you were there at the time. Now, there were those of us who opposed President Obama's quote-unquote pinprick strike in Syria. The reason being that if you send a missile into Syria and then you do nothing else, you actually embolden the Iranians and you embolden the Syrians and you embolden the Russians. Nobody expected that President Obama was going to give away the store to the Russians. If you recall back to 2013, Bashar Assad used chemical weapons. Barack Obama then drew a red line in the sand. Here is President Obama back then drawing a red line. Uh, we have been very clear to the Assad regime, but also to other players on the ground that a red line for us is we start seeing a whole bunch of chemical weapons moving around or being utilized. Uh, that would change my calculus. That would change my equation. Okay, so he made that statement actually in August of 2012. And then, of course, Bashar Assad immediately used chemical weapons, like within a couple of months. And then Barack Obama did something really unexpected. First, he said, maybe I'll, maybe I'll throw a missile in there. But you know what? I need congressional approval. Now, that was obviously a lie because he didn't have congressional approval for his Libya action. He just went ahead and did it. But he, he said, I'll throw it to Congress, and that went nowhere. And then he said, you know what? I'll let the Russians take over. The Russians can come in, and they will disarm the Syrians. So Barack Obama and Susan Rice both came out. Susan Rice, then the national security advisor, she came out, and she said, don't worry. Syria's chemical weapons have been removed. They're gone. Syria has no more chemical weapons. Right? Obama was triumphalist about this. He said, everything is better. There will be no more chem chemical weapons attacks. Everything is under control. Here is Barack Obama and Susan Rice. This is back in 2013. Think about what we've done these last eight years without firing a shot. We've eliminated Syria's declared chemical weapons program. All of these steps have helped keep us safe and helped keep our troops safe. Those are the result of diplomacy. We don't have strong efforts there. The more you will be called upon to clean up after the failure of diplomacy. We were able to find a solution that actually removed the chemical weapons that were known from Syria in a way that the use of force would never have accomplished. Okay, and Tommy Veter said the same thing. Well, you know, we got rid of a lot of the chemical weapons, right, except for the ones that he's using on the civilians and has continued to use on the civilians. So well done, Susan Rice. It is amazing. All these people who came into the Obama administration proclaiming that it was a new day for American foreign policy and they're going to act in the humanitarian interest of the people of Syria and then proceeded to allow that entire country to descend into utter and absolute chaos. Now, there's a civil war going on, and that wasn't Barack Obama's fault. It was Barack Obama's fault that he decided to hand over all of these security concerns to the Russians. Okay, the Russians obviously had nefarious purposes there. All they care about is propping up Bashar Assad. And all of this raises the question, which is, okay, what should the United States do now? And that is a serious and open question. You know, it, it is amazing, again, how badly the Obama administration blew it. This is not on President Trump, but now Trump is the president, so that 
raises a question as to where we go from here. In a second, I'm going to answer that question for you, or at least give you maybe some, some concerns that I have about full-scale military intervention, as well as some possibilities on what we can do in Syria right now. First, I want to say thanks to our sponsors over at Stamps.com. So these days, you can get practically everything on demand, but you still think you have to go to the post office to get your stamps. Well, you no longer have to go to your post office to get the stamps. Instead, you go to stamps.com. With stamps.com, you can access all of the amazing services of the post office right from your desk 24-7 when it's convenient for you. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package using your own computer and printer. The mail carrier just picks it up. Just click, print, mail, you're done. You can print it right onto the envelope. You can print it right onto a sticker. You can print it right onto a piece of paper and then tape it to an envelope. We use stamps.com here at the Daily Wire offices all the time because we don't have time to run down to the post office. It saves us time, it saves us money, and it will save you time and money as well. Right now, we have a special offer for all of our listeners. If you use promo code Shapiro, you get 55 bucks, up to 55 bucks of free postage plus a digital scale, and a four-week trial. So all you do is go to stamps.com, and before you do anything else, before you even check out the website, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Shapiro, and that gets you, that's your promo code, stamps.com. Use that promo code Shapiro, and again, you get up to $55 free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. So a pretty spectacular deal. Once you've tried it, you'll love it, and you'll continue using it, I promise. Stamps.com, and use that promo code Shapiro when you click on that radio microphone at the top of the page. Again, that radio microphone, click Shapiro. Type in Shapiro, get that special deal, and let them know that we sent you. Okay, so what exactly should we do from here? Right, That is the big question in all of this. And one of the things that has changed, there are a lot of people like me who back during the Obama administration said, this is a direct quote in 2013, lobbing missiles into Syria without decapitating the regime strengthens both, both Assad and the mullahs. In other words, whatever you do has to have real impact. You can't do what Obama wanted to do and take a half-assed action and then hope that everything is going to be better. That doesn't work. And you can't hand over power to the Russian government, whose only interest is in continued propagation of the domination of Bashar Assad and the continued domination of the Iranian regime across the Middle East. And things have changed radically since 2013 because of a couple of the deals that the Obama administration cut. Remember, the situation in 2012-2013 was a lot simpler. Russia was not running Syria at that point, and Iran was still under American sanction. Well, because of Barack Obama... Iran now has a lot of money to play with, and they have expanded their terrorism outreach all across the Middle East. Suddenly, there's a swath of territory all the way from Iran to Lebanon that is dominated by Iran. That's dominated by Iran, and that includes Syria. This is why Israel was the one that actually struck out yesterday uh, at, at, this, uh, at the targets in Syria. They've been striking out at targets in Syria, as I say, over 100 times they struck at targets in Syria since 2012, because Syria is being used as a thoroughfare for the world's worst weapons being put in the hands of terrorists, people like Hamas, people like Hezbollah. Yadlin Amos is a general, retired general in the Israeli army. He's the executive director of Tel Aviv University's Institute for National Security Studies. And he has a really interesting tweet thread about what happened last night when Israel apparently struck T4, which is in a Syrian airbase. He said, the reported strike last night in T4, Syria is part of the two colliding vectors, Iranian determination to entrench itself in Syria and Israeli resolve to prevent it. This was the first reported airstrike since, 10, since February 10th incidents. The colliding vectors were recognized months ago in the Israeli national security strategy, and Syrian and Iranian responses cannot be ruled out. The strike's timing drove Syria to first attribute it to the U.S. as a response to Assad's use of chemical weapons against civilians in Douma. However, 
The U.S. has denied responsibility while the target hit is connected to Iran and not to, and not to chemical weapons. It is not from T-4 Air, uh, Air Force Base that the CW dropping aircraft came, while reports of Iranian casualties are a strong testament. That being said, a strike may well serve two purposes, promoting two objectives in a single step, preventing Iranian entrenchment in Syria with advanced weaponry and sending a moral message that using CW to commit mass murder is not acceptable. To that end, even if it does not take responsibility for the strike last night, it is important that Israel make its voice heard, denouncing the use of chemical weapons and their use in Syria awaits a U.S. and Western response, and one cannot rule out the possibility of a U.S. strike on regime targets. So here's what's happening. This has now become a grand strategic game. This is no longer a, a situation in which everything is contained. Okay, that's the reality of the situation in Syria right now. This is not a containable situation. Russia is involved. Iran is involved. This is now a proxy war about who is going to control this entire swath of land in the Middle East. That means Saudi Arabia is involved. It means Jordan is involved. It means Egypt is involved. It means Israel is involved. If World War III breaks out in Syria, World War III will break out because Barack Obama allowed Syria to become a tinderbox by pulling American troops out of Iraq, by allowing Iran to run roughshod through Iraq, and by allowing Iran to extend its domination all the way to Lebanon. So what exactly should we do? Well, we should do a couple of things. If we have the capacity, we should knock out as much of the Syrian Air Force as we possibly can. We should knock down as many of their anti-aircraft missiles as we possibly can. We should, it, it's probably impossible to decapitate the regime with significant amounts of boot on the ground. Whatever we can do from the air, we should do from the air. And we should also ensure that there are safe havens, safe havens for Syrian rebels and people who want to escape the Assad regime. And those should be protected by a coalition force led by the United States. The reason being that there have to be safe spaces for all of these Syrian refugees. Otherwise, they're just going to come into the West. Otherwise, they're just going to escape across the Mediterranean and into Europe, or they will come to the United States. And that is something that a lot of Trump supporters are not fond of either. So either they're going to stay there in safe places that we help set up, or they will be killed, or they will escape. But should we go in and make this a full-scale land war? Probably not. Probably not, because again, what's America's interest here? America has two real interests, checking Russian ambitions. Well, three interests, okay? Humanitarian, but that exists all across the globe. Checking Russian interests in Syria. Russia wants to ensure that Bashar Assad and the Iranian regime retain power and gain power in that region, which makes it more likely that war breaks out, and stopping the growth of the Iranian regime. Israel and Saudi Arabia, by the way, are happy to take the lead here, right? Israel obviously is already taking the lead here. Israel isn't gonna wait. So the fact that the United States can mobilize a, a commitment behind Israeli-led action in Syria would be a good thing. Now, if we have allies who are willing to do this, there's no reason the United States should have to lead the way. But again, the U.S. is going to have to be involved. That means setting up these, these safer places for Syrian refugees to go. It means neutering the ability of the Assad regime to use chemical weapons. And it means preventing them from making more territorial encroachments into rebel-held areas. Uh, and that means providing actual armed support to whatever Syrian rebels are left who have not been murdered already by ISIS and the Assad regime and arming those people who are left in order to resist the Assad regime. This now has implications far beyond the borders of Syria, uh, and we are going to pay a price for it in terms of money and treasure and the possibility of additional terrorism and the spread of chemical weapons if we take a fully hands-off approach as some of the more isolationist members of the Republican Party seem to be, seem to be promoting. Okay, well, meanwhile, uh, there's, there's a bunch of uh, other stuff going on. Among those other things, apparently, President Trump is intent on launching a trade war. The, the stock market has been up and down, basically uh, assuming that you know, President Trump is not serious about the trade war or that he is serious about the trade war. It's not clear where he is on the trade war, but it's interesting to see how many members of the, uh, how many members of the Trump administration are trying to kind of shift his thinking 
on trade itself. So let's talk a little bit about where he is. So a couple of Trump's officials went on TV over the weekend to talk about President Trump's initiation of a trade war against China. He obviously has set tariffs extraordinarily high in particular sectors of the economy. And there are two takes on tariffs. Okay, take number one from the Trump administration on tariffs is that tariffs are a tool that is to be used as often as possible because they're good for the United States. We have a trade deficit, and the only way to rectify that trade imbalance is to put tariffs on foreign products, thereby forcing American citizens to buy American and lowering the amount of money that we are exporting to China, for example. Okay, that is idiotic economically for reasons that I've suggested many times on this program. Okay, the reality is that taxing American citizens does not make American citizens more wealthy. And all a tariff is, is an indirect tax on American citizens for the benefit of certain American businesses. So if there is a steel maker who is less efficient than another steel maker that is located abroad, and you are forcing American citizens to patronize the American steel maker, you are taking money out of my pocket and giving it to another business that is just a form of redistributionism. It's a tax and spend program. That's all a tariff is. It's a domestic tax and spend program, and that does not make America any wealthier. Now, it is another question if you are using trade in order to punish bad regimes, for example, We've done that with South Africa in the past. We have done that with Iran. We did that. That's what sanctions were for. It was essentially a tariff on, on uh, an, an impossibly high tariff on Iran was essentially what a sanction is in policy. Uh, so there's using it for security reasons. There's also using it in order to try and jog other countries to lower their tariffs. So let's say China has a bunch of tariffs on American products. And we say, listen, you lower your tariffs, we'll lower our tariffs. But if you're going to tariff our products, we will tariff yours. And our market is bigger than yours. Right? Then that may be worthwhile also. Now, the problem here is that Trump is a devotee of the first kind of thinking, that tariffs are universally good. A lot of the people who surround him are people who think that tariffs can be strategically useful. And I think what they are trying to do inside the Trump administration is manipulate the president into using tariffs as a targeted method of lowering tariffs elsewhere or pushing security change. And what Trump actually wants is he just likes the tariffs generally. So you can see this from some of his officials. Steve Mnuchin is one of them. Uh, Mnuchin came out and he said, listen, maybe there'll be a trade war, but it'll be okay. Trump, what, what Trump's officials know better than anybody, the people who surround Trump, is that there's one word Trump does not hear, and that word is no. If you say to President Trump no about anything, there is a 100% guarantee he will do that thing. It does not matter what the thing is. Literally, they told him, don't look into a solar eclipse without your sunglasses. And the President of the United States took off his sunglasses and looked into a solar eclipse. Because if you tell him no, <laughs> he's got the same reaction as both my kids. Who are you? Who are you? Okay, so you know, Steve Mnuchin and Larry Kudlow both have been avoiding telling him no. What they're trying to do instead is, I think, convince him that it's a qualified no. Yes, Mr. President, that's brilliant policy, but it would be best if you used it in this particular way. So I'll explain what they're doing in just a second. First, I want to say thanks to our sponsors over at Wink. So, you know, does all this news stuff make you stressed out? It makes me stressed out. And that's why at night, sometimes you need a glass of wine. Let's be real about this. Or you're going over to a dinner party and you don't know anything about wine. And you don't want to arrive at their door with a bottle of Drano. Well, the best way to avoid that horrible fate is to go over to my friends at Wink. So Wink makes it easy to discover great wine. Wink's wine experts select wines matched to your taste, personalized for you, shipped right to your door, starting just 13 bucks a bottle. Just fill out Wink's palate profile quiz. So here's how it works. You go, and there's a bunch of simple questions. Things like, how do you take your coffee? How do you feel about blueberries? Tastes that you like. And then they will recommend a bottle of wine to you, and they send wines curated to your taste. The more wines you rate, the more personalized your monthly selections become. It's just like any other service like Netflix. They have algorithms that help them determine what kind of wines you will like. And each month, there are new delicious wines. Right now, they have an insanely popular summer water rosé. This wine is very popular around the office. We've actually had Wink wine tastings here at the office. 
which is not good for productivity, but it is good for a company spirit. Okay, discover great wine today. Go to trywink.com slash Ben. It's W-I-N-C dot com. Trywink.com slash Ben. You get 20 bucks off your first shipment. That's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash Ben for $20 off your first shipment. Again, trywink.com slash Ben. Their wines are all tremendous and you will really enjoy them. And again, they're all curated directly to your taste. You never have to arrive at somebody's house with a crappy bottle of wine ever again, nor do you have to spend 100 bucks on a nice bottle of wine just to prove that you know what you're doing. Instead, go to trywink.com slash Ben, and you get that 20 bucks off. That also lets them know that we sent you. Okay, so here are the members of the Trump administration trying to convince President Trump that a trade war might not be a bad idea while saying, well, okay, maybe there'll be a trade war because they don't actually want to say no to the president. Here's Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. I don't expect there will be a trade war. Uh, it could be, but I don't, I don't expect it at all. But the president is willing to make sure we have free and fair trade, as you've seen his tweet already this morning. And again, he has a very close relationship with President Xi, and uh, we'll continue to discuss these issues with them. Okay, so uh, you know, he, he is you know, soft-pedaling it because, again, if you say no to Trump, it is more likely that he launches a trade war on everybody. Larry Kudlow sort of doing the same thing. He's the new head of the National Economic Council and a free trader. He says, listen, we have to do this, but listen to his rationale for why these tariffs are necessary. It is not because the tariffs are a great idea just in and of themselves. It's because he thinks that they are a useful tool for lowering tariffs elsewhere. But my message essentially is, look, we have to do this. We have to get China to change its behavior. It's been two decades, and they're still stealing our intellectual property. They're still forcing technology uh, uh, turnovers. Uh, from our businesses to them. They've still got high tariffs. They've still got trade barriers. They still have market closing instead of market opening. So that's got to change. Trump is doing the Lord's work. Okay, so Kudlow is basically saying the tariffs are a point of leverage. It's not that tariffs are just a wonderfully innate great thing. You know, President Trump, however, tends to think that they are a great thing. I hope that Kudlow obviously prevails. I hope that Mnuchin prevails. I hope that his team allows Trump to recognize the reality about trade, which is that tariffs can be a useful tool for leveraging things from other people, but they're not good innately for the United States of America. Okay, meanwhile, another news, late last week, we didn't get a chance to comment on it. Uh, this is an amazing story. Jeffrey Goldberg is the editor of The Atlantic. Jeffrey Goldberg is also a schmuck. So Jeffrey Goldberg uh, is a guy who was essentially a tool of the Obama administration in pushing out their Iran lies. Every time they had a piece of propaganda, they went out to Jeffrey Goldberg because Jeffrey Goldberg was their boy. Jeffrey Goldberg was the guy who was going to say what they wanted. Well, now he's the editor of The Atlantic. And a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, he did something that looked a little more reasonable. It looked a little smarter. He said he wanted to diversify the opinion pages over at The Atlantic, and they hired former National Review columnist Kevin Williamson. Now, Kevin is a real uh, iconoclast. Kevin is the kind of guy who says, uh, I would say, wild things on a regular basis. He's a, cre he's a tremendous writer. I mean, a really tremendous writer. But all of his language is extraordinarily strong. Uh, he always takes very strong positions, some of them on, on bizarre issues. And one of the issues that people had known about for a long time that Kevin had spoken about was that he is not generally in favor of the death penalty. He doesn't like the death penalty, and he would avoid the death penalty. But if the death penalty were to remain applicable in the United States, he believes that women should be punished for abortion because if abortion is homicide, then women should be punished for it. And if women were to be punished for it and the death penalty were still in play, then he presumes that women would get the death penalty. Right? He had tweeted about that before. And The Atlantic fully knew about this. Right? Jeffrey Goldberg knew about it. Everyone on Twitter knew about this. It was one of w Williamson's weirder positions. Now, the general pro-life position on this issue is that you wouldn't actually punish the woman for the abortion. You punish the abortion doctors for the abortion because women who are obtaining abortions generally are doing so because they do not have the proper mens rea. They don't actually think of it as killing their own baby. And so they don't actually know what it is they're doing, whereas a doctor full well knows what he's doing. 
This has always been the pro-life position in the general pro-life community. Williamson takes an even stronger position than that, obviously. Well, he tweeted something out about it, and then they discovered that on a podcast, he talked a little bit about it. So here's what it sounded like when Kevin Williamson, this, this new Atlantic columnist, had talked about this on a podcast with, uh, with Charlie Cook, a National Review podcast called Mad, Mad Dogs and Englishmen. And someone challenged me on my views of abortion, you know, saying if you really thought it was a crime, you would support things like, uh, you know, life in prison, uh, no parole, uh, for treating as a homicide. And I do support that. In fact, as I wrote, what I might is hanging. And uh, but yeah, so when I was talking about, yeah, I would, uh, I would totally go with uh, treating like any other crime up to and including hanging. Okay, so what he meant there, of course, is that as a thought experiment, if you were going to have hanging as the legal method of death in all of these various areas, Williamson by nature is against the death penalty, by the way, then he would say that that applies to abortion. Now, do I think that's a good argument? No. Do I, do I agree with Williamson? No. But the Atlantic fired him for this. Okay, then they issued a statement talking about how his views were essentially unacceptable. Here is what Goldberg said, quote, the language he used in this podcast and in my conversations with him in recent days made it clear that the original tweet did in fact represent his carefully considered views. Okay, well, you didn't know that? Like he had said that. It was on, it was on his Twitter account. And I assume that Jeffrey Goldberg had called him up about it and Goldberg had said, do you believe this? And William said, yeah, I believe this. Well, as the editor of the website, one of the things that we do is we hire a bunch of people with widely disparate views. They're all on the right because I'm the editor of the website and it's a right-wing website. It's a conservative website over at Daily Wire. If people hold opinions, like pro-choice opinions, for example, they do not appear on our website. There may be pro-choice writers who write for us. I really don't know, but I can edit what goes on my website. Well, the Atlantic certainly could have done the same thing with Williamson if they don't like this particular opinion. And he said, listen, I want to write a long article about why hanging is the proper response to abortion. And the, and the Atlantic said, listen, we don't want that in our pages. That's their prerogative. But firing him preemptively for a thought crime, for a view that he had not expressed in the pages of the Atlantic is a pretty amazing thing. And Williamson has a lot of very strong positions. And what this really is, is that the left believes that any right winger, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter for Williamson or Brett Stevens or me or Ross Dudhat. It does not matter. Okay, anybody who is on the right, Barry Weiss is not even on the white, right. If you, are, if you are not of the hardcore left, then the left sees you as an improper human being, right? They, they will not allow you to appear in their pages on a regular basis, or if they do, they will do so extraordinarily grudgingly. Okay, and, and the Atlantic was considered a more moderate sort of publication. Right? There are more moderate publications that try to do this, but they are becoming fewer and farer between. And just to point out that the Atlantic is not consistent about their standards for public rhetoric, the Atlantic champions the fact that they are the home of Ta-Nehisi Coates. Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote about 9-11 first responders that they were, quote-unquote, not human to me. That is a direct quote from Ta-Nehisi Coates. The fact is that the Atlantic has given glowing profiles to people like Peter Singer. Peter Singer is a, is a quote-unquote, ethicist at Princeton who forcibly advocates for the murder of children outside the womb. He says if a woman wants to kill a baby after it is born, that is okay. So just to be straight about this, Peter Singer says killing a baby after it's born is okay because babies don't have an awareness of their time and place in the universe because they're stupid. And so you can kill them, right? This is Peter Singer's stated position on, on genocide against small children, against babies. That is worthy of some sort of decent profile in the Atlantic but Kevin Williamson is too harsh on people who actually kill their babies, and this is considered something just egregious and wrong and terrible. It's pretty amazing, and it demonstrates the extremism of the left. In a second, I'm going to explain to you why it is that this has some pretty dramatic ramifications for the entire political discourse. Because, you know, Williamson may be an iconoclastic figure. You may not know who he is. You may not care about the Atlantic. But this is an indicator of where our political discourse is going, and it is nowhere good. I have a lot of 
thoughts on this. First, you're going to have to go over to dailywire.com and subscribe. So for $9.99 a month, you get a subscription to Daily Wire. When you get that subscription, you get the rest of my show live. You have the rest of Andrew Clavin's show live. You get the rest of Michael Knowles' show live as well. And you get to be part of my mailbag, Drew's mailbag. Also, tomorrow is the conversation, right? So our next episode of The Conversation is coming up tomorrow, 5.30 Eastern, 2.30 p.m. Pacific. Here's the way that it works. If you haven't joined The Conversation series, it's our monthly Q&A. It's hosted by Alicia Krauss and... All of the hosts answer personal questions, all these questions. Andrew Claven is the victim tomorrow. So you can ask all of your questions to him. It streams live at the YouTube and Facebook pages. It's free for everybody to watch. Only subscribers can actually ask the questions. To ask the questions as a subscriber, log into our website, dailywire.com. Head over to the conversation page to watch the live stream. After that, start typing into the Daily Wire chat box, and Drew will answer questions as they come in for an entire hour. So once again, subscribe, get your questions answered by Drew tomorrow. 2.30 p.m. Pacific, 5.30 p.m. Eastern, and join the conversation. You get all that with the subscriptions. That's pretty awesome. The annual subscription comes along with this. The leftist here is hot or cold mug. You will love it. It is enjoyable. It makes you wiser, smarter, and truer as a human being. So check that out. You'll, you'll add yours to your life. I've heard. Okay, I can't make that claim. It's not been verified by the FDA, but I hear that if you drink just once from this tumbler, then your life is, is strengthened, that you actually, you actually double your muscle mass. I don't know if that's true or not. I can tell you before this, I was just a weakling and I drank from that and suddenly I'm a stud. So that's the way that works. So check that out. 99 bucks a year and you get all of those aforementioned glories. It's cheaper than the monthly subscription. Or if you just want to listen later for free, go over to iTunes, go over to SoundCloud, go over to YouTube. We are the largest, fastest growing conservative show in the nation. Alrighty, so I want to talk a little bit more about Kevin Williamson here. So here is why this is a problem. You may think that Williamson's crazy. You may hate his viewpoints. You may think that Williamson is garbage. Kevin Williamson, first of all, is a very good writer. Second of all, Kevin Williamson is wildly anti-Trump. When I say he is wildly anti-Trump, I don't mean he just opposed Trump in the election. I mean that he wrote a column when Trump announced called The Ape Descends the Escalator. I mean that this is a guy who in his columns has called Donald Trump's sons Uday and Kuse. Okay, he is not subtle about his dislike for President Trump. And even he was not acceptable to the left. Because he has, a, he has a view on abortion that is outside the mainstream. And as I say, leftist views on abortion, which are inherently outside the mainstream, those are not outside the mainstream, according to The Atlantic. They are just fine. Again, Peter Singer is probably just fine for The Atlantic. But Kevin Williamson is not acceptable. What does this mean? What this means is that the left is doing something really, really damaging to American discourse. They're shrinking the Overton window. Okay, the Overton window, it's a term uh, that uh, I believe was originally used by the VP of a think tank. Uh, it was named after him. The Overton window means the range of acceptable discourse. Right? So in any conversation, there's a range of acceptable discourse. There are people who you say are just not acceptable to talk to. You know, people who, for example, say that black people are innately inferior. Right? That's it. Those are people who are just not worth talking to. That is not acceptable discourse. Now, this does not mean they, they don't have a right to say what they want to say. They have a right to say whatever they want to say. It's the First Amendment. Welcome to America. That's fine. But I am not a moral relativist, and I don't believe that just because you have a right to say something means that you should say it or that everything that is said is equal in value. Okay, so there's something called the Overton window, which is the, which is the window of acceptable discourse or useful discourse. But what the left has done is they've shrunk the Overton window down to about pinprick size. Okay, so the, the Overton window is now the space of opinion between Bernie Sanders and maybe Kamala Harris. Right? That's basically the level of acceptable discourse between Ta-Nehisi Coates' intersectional leftism and Bernie Sanders' socialist leftism. Everything in between there is cool. But if you're outside that Overton window, then you are unacceptable. So what does this mean? Well, it means that the left has now separated discourse not into three categories, but into two. So here are the three categories I have for speech. There is the acceptable, there's the unacceptable, right, outside the Overton window, and then there is the acceptable stuff, but I disagree with it. And there's lots of that stuff. Right? I'd say most discourse 
is stuff that I disagree with, but is within the Overton window. What the left has done instead is they have said there is the stuff we agree with, and then there is everything else, and everything else is unacceptable. So that means that Kevin Williamson is now a deplorable. It means that I am a deplorable. It means that Barry Weiss, a columnist for the New York Times, who I'm sure voted for Hillary Clinton, is a deplorable. It means that people like Brett Stevens and Ross Dudhat, these people are deplorable. It means that, again, Sam Harris is deplorable. Sam Harris and I disagree about a wide variety of things. But Sam Harris once said on national television that Islam is a more dangerous religion than Christianity, and suddenly he was an other. Brett Weinstein, right, a leftist, socialist college professor at Evergreen State College who refused to not teach on a day that the students said we only want non-white teachers teaching. He showed up anyway and wanted to teach. You know, that guy was declared a deplorable because he was outside the acceptable range of windows. Right? He was outside the acceptable range of opinions. So what happens when you do this? Well, what happens when you do this is it means that you're lumping in a bunch of people you disagree with with unacceptable bigots. Right, so now Kevin Williamson is in the same category, according to the left, as Richard Spencer. I'm in the same category as Richard Spencer. You wonder why I get labeled a Nazi by idiots on campus who don't know the first thing about me? Because I am not agreeing with them. Therefore, I am a Nazi. It is that simple. I am not agreeing with them. Therefore, I am a part of this basket of deplorables. I am now outside the Overton window, and I must be excluded for the, from the range of acceptable discourse. This is why President Trump is president. This is why, for a short period of time, the alt-right was in the ascendance. The reason is because... This leaves people who have now been thrown out of the acceptable range with a choice, right? We can either say, listen, we still think there are three categories, right? Not two, three. We still think that you may disagree with us, but we're in the acceptable category. And so we refuse to allow you to lump us in with people like Richard Spencer. We refuse to allow you to label us a deplorable like some of the other people you're labeling deplorables, right? You can do that or you can say, listen, screw you guys. You've now labeled everyone a Nazi, so if you're labeling me a Nazi, I don't know if, uh, I know I'm not a Nazi. Maybe the other people you're labeling Nazis also are not Nazis. Maybe all these bad people who are already out here, maybe they're out here just because you don't like them. Maybe you ought to give their views a second look. Because if you're labeling me the same way you're labeling them, if I get hit with the same category that they're being hit with, then how do I know that you were honest in your original appraisal of those people? And so there's a real temptation on the part of people who have been thrown out of the, of the acceptable category by the left to simply band together and say, listen, we're all in this together because we hate you guys. Right? Because you guys threw us out. We're out here in the cold. You threw us out of the cabin. And now it's snowing. So we can either argue amongst ourselves in the snow or we can all band together and we can try to break back into the cabin. Right? That, that's sort of the idea that's being, that's being pushed here. Now, the moral thing to do would say, listen, we're going to try to break in the cabin without the people we think are bad. We have our own independent viewpoints. I have my own independent viewpoint. And you can try to throw me out of the range of acceptable discourse, but I refuse to accept your label. And I refuse to accept that you're labeling me in the same way that you label a bunch of people who really are disgusting and who really do have disgusting views. But the temptation is going to be always and ever to simply say, listen, you've thrown us all out, alliance of, alliances of convenience. If you've declared war on us, well, we're not going to play by the Marcus of Queensberry rules. You declare war on us, we'll take the allies we can get and we'll fight back against you. The left has been counting on the virtue of conservatives to keep them from making common cause with truly garbage people. But that makes no sense. If you call conservatives garbage people, and then you say, yes, but you really should continue to separate yourself off from the actual garbage people, you can't have it both ways. If we're garbage, then you have to expect us not to act virtuous. Right? This is, you want to know why we're entering into a tribal routine here? Why we're getting closer and closer to political tribalism that is going to end poorly for all involved? The reason is because the left has created the anti-left tribe. Okay, that's what's happened. This is why. This is why Donald Trump was successful. He didn't campaign as a conservative. He campaigned as an anti-left fighter. And a lot of people said, okay, fine. Well, if he's against them, I'm with him. This is how you generate that.
If the left really wanted to have a serious conversation, they wanted to prevent this sort of tribalism, all they have to do is recognize that there are people with whom they disagree that they will still allow to be part of the discourse. And I don't mean people like David Frum, who pretend to disagree with them, but really agree with them on a, on a broad swath of policies. If they continue along these lines, they're, gonna, they're, they're really cruising for a bruising. They're really cruising. There's going to be a backlash, and it's going to be uncontrollable, uh, and they're not going to like the impact. They're already not liking the impact because the, the, the backlash is already underway. Okay, so now I want to talk a little bit about some insanity that's happening in Great Britain because this is truly crazy. So apparently, there's been a wild upswing in the amount of murder in London. Well, that's not a tremendous shock considering that the demographics of London have changed, that the policing in London has changed wildly, uh, that the mayor of London City, Khan, is really terrible at his job. But the murder rate in London now outstrips the murder rate in New York, which is pretty incredible, actually. Right? The, the murder rate in Britain has always been extraordinarily low. This is why when people say, well, you know, you ban guns in Britain, that's why the murder rate is low. The murder rate was low before the bans on guns. And the murder rate in Britain was always quite low. But here is, here is what it says according to Today Online. On Thursday, April 5th, five teenagers were stabbed in an hour and a half before sunset, including a boy of 13. All these attacks took place in London over the past week, part of an apparent spike in violence in the British capital. After a long period of steady declines in violent crime, the city has averaged in excess of three killings a week so far this year. More than 50 people have been killed in London since the start of 2018. The total for all of 2017, a year when the city suffered multiple deadly terrorist attacks, was 116. Criminologists have expressed caution about drawing conclusions from only a few months' figures, but if the uptick continues, it will amount to London's highest level of violence in more than a decade. A year with 200 homicides for a city of 8.5 million people would be far from a shocking high in the U.S. New York City had 292 murders last year, according to the 2018 Police Commissioner's Report. That was a record low, but right now London's murder rate is outstripping the murder rate uh, in New York City, which is, again, a pretty incredible thing. So I do love what they are now talking about in London. They're now talking about banning knives. No joke. So they're using the exact same logic they used about guns, and now they're applying it to knives. So Sadiq Khan has announced a broad new knife control policy designed to keep, quote-unquote, weapons of war out of the hands of Londoners looking to cause other, others harm. The UK Parliament is considering bills that would restrict the manufacture and purchase of kitchen cooking knives because they have points on them, because they're pointy things. So I, I guess machetes would still be okay, like the one that that guy used a couple of years ago that that Muslim terrorist used to chop down an actual British soldier on the streets of uh, on the streets of London. And that'll still be okay because, as we all know, machetes aren't really dangerous. Like from every horror film, we know machetes aren't dangerous; only knives are dangerous. Um, but they're going to start de determining how exactly knives are distributed. The tough immediate measures involve an incredible police crackdown, a ban on home deliveries of knives and acid, and expanding law enforcement stop and search powers so the police may stop anyone they believe to be a threat or planning a knife or acid attack. Khan announced Friday the city has created a, quote, violent crime task force of 120 officers tasked with rooting out knife-wielding individuals in public spaces and is pumping nearly $50 million into the Metropolitan Police Department so they can better arm themselves against knife attacks. He's also empowering the Met Police to introduce targeted patrols with extra stop and search powers for areas worst affected, according to a statement. Now, one of the, uh, what, what's, what's really kind of hilarious here is that one of the reasons that the crime rate is going up is because Khan is responsible for, according to Emily Zanotti at The Daily Wire, for decreasing the number of stop and searches, having previously declared the tactic racist and potentially Islamophobic. So in other words, he got rid of stop and, stop and frisk in London, saying that it was targeting too many young Muslim guys. And then the crime rate went up, and now he's going to target everyone. It's not really clear what they're going to use in London to cut their food anymore if you can't get a home delivery of a knife. And if you're not allowed to carry it home, how do you actually get the knife from the department store home? 
Parliament is set to take up heavy knife control legislation when it resumes this week. The UK government is expected to introduce a ban on online knife sales and home knife deliveries. So now you have to go to a store to purchase a knife. Maybe you have to have a license to purchase a knife. You have to have, to be, what do you have to be, a, a culinary specialist? They declare it illegal to possess zombie knives and knuckle dusters in private. Zombie knives are those defined as ma being manufactured for the purpose of being used as a person-to-person -person weapon and ban sales of caustic materials to anyone under the age of 18. Of course, that won't really stop anything since most of these acid attacks that have been occurring uh, are occurring among people who are late teenagers or older. London has seen a dramatic uptick in murder rates, of course. So again, it ain't about the knives, folks. Maybe you ought to look at the people who are wielding the knives. Maybe you ought to be looking at the people who are actually performing the acid attacks. But since we're not allowed to do that, we're going to crack down on knives, and then we'll crack down on fists, and then we'll, we'll crack down on any blunt object in your home. We won't be allowed to have blunt objects. Soon, we'll end up all sitting in blank rooms with no furniture, because anything can be used as, maybe, maybe pillows, but no, we could use pillows for suffocation. So eventually, we're all just walking around like John Travolta in The Bubble Boy, because that presumably will stop crime, not actually targeting criminals. Pretty amazing stuff, but demonstrates what happens when an entire civilization loses their mind and stops targeting criminality and starts instead pretending that the tools of criminality are more important than the criminals themselves. Okay, time for a couple of things that I like and then some things that I hate. So, things that I like. Uh, so, on the way home yesterday in the car, uh, it was a long drive, and so everyone was asleep, and so that's a good time to listen to musical theater because you actually get a story told to you. Well, one of my favorite musicals is, of course, Pippin, and one of the best numbers from Pippin uh, is Corner of the Sky. Here's what it sounds like. And the new Broadway production is just tremendous. I believe it's on tour now. Uh, if it's not, then it was recently. Um, but the production is really, really good. It's not for children, obviously. It's PG-13 and up. Um, but this song is just great. its season everything has its time show me a reason and i'll soon show you a rhyme cats fit on the windowsill children fit in the snow so why do i feel i don't fit in anywhere i go rivers belong where they can So this show won Best Tony, uh, best, best, uh, best Musical Tony in the 1970s, uh, and uh, it's, it's really first rate. One of the things that's fascinating about this show is that the whole show is about a guy who has these wide world aspirations for changing the world and making a dent in the world and all this stuff, and it's about him learning that you can, that, that maybe the best way to make a dent in the world is just by living a life where you bring up your wife and kids. And it's a pretty, a pretty amazing message that comes out of Broadway. Um, yeah, particularly because Broadway is so far to the left, but it's it's an important message nonetheless. So check out Pippin if you ever have a chance. It's really it's really great. Okay, a couple of other things that I like. So apparently, um, Bill Maher over the weekend defended Laura Ingram. Laura Ingram, of course, was victim of a boycott by a bunch of leftists because she said something quasi mean to a Parkland student, which you're not allowed to do. And Bill Maher comes out and he says, "Listen, I don't like Laura Ingram, but this is stupid. Good for Bill Maher." I want to defend Laura Ingram. I know that sounds ridiculous. Uh... <laughs> But it has to do with the Parkland kids and guns and free speech. Now, I think those kids did a great thing. They put this issue uh, in a place we've never had it before, and I wish them success. But, you know, if you're going to be out there in the arena and make yourselves 
the champions of this cause, people are going to have the right, I think, to argue back. Here's what she she tweeted. David Hogg rejected by four colleges because he put that up there because, of course, we have to share everything uh, to which he applied and whined about it. OK, maybe you shouldn't say that about a 17 year old. But again, he is in the arena. And then he calls for a boycott of her sponsors. Now, what what is really is that American? To call for yeah, a, really yeah, that, 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 let, let me explain something because uh, I told because I, 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 think, I, I, and he complains about bullying. That's listen, bullying. I, I have been from the from of a boycott. I, look, I, I, I lost a job once. It is wrong. You shouldn't Boy. be do this by team. You should do it by principle. I agree. Okay, good, good, but, for, good, good for good for Mar. Good for Mar. I mean, what Mar is saying here is exactly correct. And again, you know, Mar is one of these guys who who knows because he has been thrown out of the left for his failures to abide by the window of acceptable discourse, right? He said some things the left doesn't like on occasion, and this, particularly about Islam, and this has made him a target of the left. The more the left throws people out and calls for boycotts against them, uh, the more they are destroying their own credibility, even with the people who supposedly like them. Okay, time for a couple of things that I hate. Okay, thing that I hate, number one. So there's a story out of Bradenton, Florida, and this is supposed to be some sort of grand civil rights issue. Apparently, there's a 17-year-old named Lizzie Martin, and she was told by the principal of her school or the school district uh, that she needed to put Band-Aids on her nipples. Why? Because she showed up to school in a gray Calvin Klein shirt without wearing any bra. And so they tried to make her put on a second T-shirt, and then they said, well, maybe you should just cover up your nipples. And she said, we went to the clinic, and the nurse gave me Band-Aids in there, and she told me to X out my nipples. She followed the command saying she felt she had no other options. Her mother told the outlet the school dean made a big deal about it. She said this was a shirt that was unisex, that was too big, that was not form-fitting. She said there was a double standard that a male with excessive breast tissue wouldn't be asked to confine the movement of his chest. Okay, this is the stupidest crap ever. Okay, she's a 17-year-old girl. She's in a class with a bunch of 17-year-old boys. If you really believe there's a 17-year-old girl with half a grain of intelligence on planet Earth who doesn't know exactly what she's doing when she wears no bra to class with a bunch of 17-year-old boys, you got another thing coming. This doesn't mean boys should sexually harass. Obviously not. It doesn't mean that boys should say anything or do anything to her. None of that is the case. But if you think it's not distracting to boys when there are girls walking around with, with their nipples showing, you're out of your mind. Like, what in the... Are we supposed to pretend that human nature doesn't exist now? Is this what we are supposed to pretend? And are we supposed to pretend that this 17-year-old girl doesn't know that human nature exists? Are we supposed to pretend this is a thing? Okay, most schools have dress codes. The reason they have dress codes is precisely to avoid this sort of situation where boys are being distracted by girls and girls are being distracted by boys. Honestly, you want the best thing for girls in school? Really, there have been studies to prove this. The best things for girls in school are sex-segregated classes. Okay, like when I went to high school, I went to an Orthodox Jewish high school. There was a boys' school. There was a girls' school. Girls in sex-segregated classes do better. They do better. And it's not for the benefit of the boys that this happens. Girls do better. Why? Because girls have this weird idea that boys want them to be stupid and sexualized. And so they play to those stereotypes. But if they're with a bunch of girls, then they're just there for the academics. But again, if a 17-year-old girl wears something completely inappropriate to school and she's distracting the other students, I fail to see how this is completely, like what the school district did that was so unbelievably wrong here. They probably shouldn't have told her to go put like band-aids on her nipples, but they should have called up her parents and say, you know, mom, bring her a sweatshirt. Or they should have had one of the teachers say, okay, here's a sweatshirt, put on the sweatshirt. But again, like, if, if you're going to take this logic to its full extreme, presumably what you would say is that she should walk around topless, and that should be no problem. Everybody should basically say, okay, no problem. You know what? It's just, listen, if a boy walked around topless, it wouldn't be, then you wouldn't have a problem with that? Yes, because boys and girls are different. Okay, first of all, you wouldn't want boys walking around topless either, but, but 
To pretend that a dude walking around topless is the same thing as a woman walking around topless in American society is fully crazy. It's fully crazy. But I guess we have to completely pretend that, again, reality doesn't exist and human nature doesn't exist. And so it's some sort of grand sin that the police, that, that, the, uh, that the school district thought that a girl should actually cover up her nipples in a class with boys. What stupidity? What stupidity? Okay, other things that I hate. So last week, uh, I made it sound like the Stefan Clark case in Sacramento was a little more clear cut than it was. And I want to correct myself on that because I think that it's important that we get as much of the truth about this as possible. So here is the actual tape of what happened with Stefan Clark. So here is, first of all, the introduction to that tape. Police responded to reports of a broken window. Uh, David French over at National Review describes it. And when you watch all the released footage, you can see the initial response is pretty calm and casual. Two officers politely knock on a door. They ask permission to search a backyard. They find nothing. And then they walk back to the street. Meanwhile, a helicopter overhead spots a person trying to break into a car uh, and then jumping a fence and moving to a neighboring house where he looks in a car window. And that person is Stefan Clark. So he is in the middle of criminal activity. And then he runs to his grandparents' house. There's nothing visible in his hands at that time. The police run to the house. They spot Clark in the driveway and they yell, hey, show me your hands. Stop, stop. And Clark, instead of obeying, flees to the back of the house. The officers pursue and they round the corner of the house. And one says, show me your hands. Gun. Okay, so they think that he has a gun. They retreat behind the corner for roughly one or two seconds. Then they round the corner again. One officer yells, show me your hands, gun, gun, gun. And they start firing. And 20 seconds later, he's dead. So the, the encounter from yelling, hey, to Clark, to firing the first shot takes approximately 17 seconds. Here is what it looks like on the body cams. Hey, show me your hands. Stop, stop. Five, seven, seven. Okay, so as you can see, it's really difficult to see what's going on there. It's very difficult to see. And so I wouldn't want to be unfair to the officers by saying that they went in there with the intent to kill or anything like this. Um, but does this look like something negligent to me? It, it, it looks like, I mean, the, the amount of time that he's given to respond is very short. Now, should he have immediately obeyed the officer's command? Yes. I mean, this is rule number one. When an officer tells you to do something, you obey the command. Also, should she have been breaking into cars? Probably not. This is not a good idea. However, that said, does that mean that officers are completely free from fallibility in these sorts of situations? The guy was unarmed. He was unarmed. Okay. And when he comes back around, they say, show me your hands, gun, gun, gun. And the, I mean, you can hear it. It's right on the back of it. It's not show me your hands gun, 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 right? It's show me your hands, gun, gun, gun. So there you have a chance to, to give him a chance to respond. And, uh, and I think David French gets this right. He says, before you object and tell me that routine encounters can and do escalate, I know that. But when, uh, what I'm questioning are probabilities and perspective. Here are some questions. If it's dark, police are sprinting and flashlights are shaking. What are the chances that the cop's first assessment that the suspect had a gun are wrong? What was the reasonable risk of backing off and continuing to give strong verbal commands rather than immediately moving from cover to an exposed position and opening fire? What are the possibility that the suspect hadn't heard the commands at all? There's some evidence that he may have had earbuds in. Also, what's the background level of risk here? Sacramento hasn't seen a cop shot and killed in the line of duty for almost 20 years. And it's true that cops have seconds to make life and death decisions. But you know who else has life and who has just a couple of seconds to figure that out is the suspect. So if you don't give the suspect a chance to respond, then what exactly are you supposed to do? This doesn't mean that these cops are going to go to jail, as I sort of suggested last week. It's possible that they won't. It's possible that, that people will find this their story convincing, or at least they will find it justifiable, um, or at least excusable. But there are some problems with training, I think, among some of our police officers, and certainly. 
Uh, this does raise questions about deadly use of force by police officers and whether they should be so quick on the trigger in some of these particular situations. Okay, so I just wanted to clarify all of that because I don't want to get any of the facts wrong. By the way, there's another correction I think I have to make from last week as well. And that was on the show last week, I had mentioned the YouTube shooter, and I think I had suggested that she was Muslim. I said, of course, that her religion had nothing to do with the shooting because she just seemed like a crazy person. Uh, apparently, she was Baha'i, so it doesn't really change much because I said religion had nothing to do with it. But just to correct the record, I want to make sure I get as many facts correct as I, as I can on the show. And by the way, folks, you, have all my, you all have my email address. It's bshapiro at dailywire.com. If you hear me make a mistake on the air, please let me know so I can correct it on the air so that I'm not screwing things up. Alrighty, so I think we've run out of time. We'll do a Federalist paper tomorrow, probably sometime later this week because we've run out of time. Um, but we'll see you here then. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Mathis Glover, executive producer Jeremy Boring, senior producer Jonathan Hay. Our technical producer is Austin Stevens, edited by Alex Zingaro. Audio is mixed by Mike Caromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire forward publishing production. Copyright forward publishing 2018. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick-charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 